Um, we may go over a little bit this morning because I have to do these studies and I can't edit them like I can other sermons. And I was talking to Sandra about it down there and she said, tell them not to worry. The WMU has provided, the Women on Mission have provided candy at the conclusion of the service outside the door. So it gives you something to look forward to um, when you leave, okay? So we were laughing about that. And I'm always glad to yield time for missions or whatever we need to do. And sometimes it will uh, run us over a little bit from our noon hour, but not much. And if I quit talking and start preaching, then that would be less time, right? So Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. See, I know what you're thinking. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels." He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In the classic movie, The Princess Bride, the main character, Wesley, is struck down by the enemy. He is taken to a miracle worker who convinces the others that he's only mostly dead. Sadly, many of our churches are in this position, though without the comedic aspect of a movie. They are barely clinging to life because they are barely faithful to Jesus. It is time for resuscitation. We are all a product of our birth parents. Our physical features are a combination of their genetics. They are traits that we get from one parent or the other, such as eye color, hair color, and even height. We are directly tied to our parents through genetics. The power of a congregation is directly tied to the congregation's loyalty and faithfulness to Christ. A dead church is a result of a dormant faith. Revitalizing our faith can restore our place in God's mission. The city of Sardis was located 30 miles southeast of Thyatira on a series of hills formed into an elongated plateau with steep sides. It was one of the most ancient cities in the region. It had been capital to the Lydian kingdom and was often fought over in order to control the region. It was a difficult city to conquer, but Antiochus the Great did so in 195 B.C. In 17 A.D., an earthquake caused major damage to the city and the Roman emperor Tiberius had it rebuilt. For the most part, the greatness of the city was in its past. During Antiochus' rule, he caused a large migration of Jewish families to Sardis, sometimes during the missionary journeys of Paul, perhaps during his three years in Ephesus, the church of Sardis was established. 
At the time of the New Testament's writing, the days of military prominence for the city were gone. However, Sardis long retained a considerable commercial property derived from its advantageous position on the roads from Smyrna and Pergamum to the interior of Asia. The comparison of what the city had been and what it had become is an accurate context for the state of the church within its boundaries. Jesus, as we pick up this passage of Scripture in verse 1 of chapter 3, in speaking of this church, knows their condition. Jesus addressed himself to the church as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We have already observed the two images from the first chapter of Revelation. The number seven often indicates a sense of completeness or even perfection. The seven spirits is a phrase that has carried various interpretations throughout church history. As indicated in chapter one, the seven spirits have been understood to be a group of angels accompanying Jesus. Or representatives of the seven pastors of the seven churches being addressed in these letters. Or third, indicative of the fullness of the Holy Spirit's presence with Jesus. It is a wise choice to opt for the third of these views. For during his earthly ministry, Jesus operated in the Holy Spirit's power and blessing. We remember at his baptism that the Spirit of God descended as a dove onto Jesus. The Lord then promised and delivered the Holy Spirit's indwelling to the church. Jesus was also accompanied by the seven stars. The image appeared earlier in the letter to the Ephesian church. That Jesus holds the stars is an image of the control of the church and thus Jesus working through the pastors of those congregations. To the church of Sardis... Jesus was displaying that he was asserting his control of them. Taking two images together, they communicate God's watchful and authoritative presence. The one who owns the church cannot be deceived. After presenting his commanding presence, Jesus used the familiar phrase, I know your works. With each repetition of this statement by the Lord, we must not allow it to lose its impact. For a church that has lost its enthusiasm or one that has retained it, to recognize that Jesus has an intimate knowledge of us is a life-changing fact. Jesus knows his churches. He knows us. We must never lose sight of that because we see it over and over again in these letters. For the Sardis church, he ensured that they understood he knew about their spiritual lives. Sadly, they had a public reputation that did not match their spiritual reality. Jesus stated, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. The idea of a reputation is for it to reflect the truth about your life. But in this case, it was deceptive. The context of the church residing in Sardis provides an appropriate background for such a message to be delivered. They acted as though they were alive, but they were dead. The church that loses its loyalty cannot be alive. Jesus declared the church to be dead. Not the church, but a church. The church at Sardis. So how could we escape 
that reality in today's world. The Lord of life has stated that your congregation is dead. Though one might hope there is a Greek word in the original text to help us skirt past the issue or soften the blow, there is not. The Greek term is nekros, and in this case, dead means dead. There's no other translation. Consider the depth to which a church must fall for God to declare it spiritually dead. They may have been busy with outward activity, but inwardly they had lost all spiritual fervor. They had worked, but for the wrong reasons. They had lost their loyalty to Christ. It is worthy of pausing to consider the current life of our own congregations. If Jesus would send a message to our churches, would he make a similar declaration? We can be quite busy with religious duties, but spiritually bankrupt. We need a direction to know how to have a reality of spiritual maturity that matches a reputation of being a living church. Jesus confronts their reality in verses 2 and 3. The beautiful gift of this message to the church in Sardis is that the accusation of unfaithfulness is accompanied by a corrective action the church must take. You see, that's always the beauty of a relationship with Christ. He does not leave us without direction. If we seek Him out, we will find Him. By his grace, Jesus did not leave the believers in Sardis to their own devices. Jesus gave five commands to the church to confront their reality of disloyalty to him. The first command is, in verse 2, be alert. In the history of Sardis, the city twice had been overrun by invaders because the watchmen had failed their duties. It was an appropriate command in the context for the church. In order for the believers in Sardis to change their ways, their first action was to wake up to the reality. Thus command did give the sense that the church, or this command did give the sense that the church was not beyond hope and restoration. They needed to be aware of the sin that had penetrated their lives. For every believer, we must be on the lookout for the adversary who wishes to destroy us and for our own flesh that will draw us into sin. He tells us to be alert. Be aware of what's happening. Many people go through life unaware, don't they, of the realities sometimes that are right before them. The second thing he said in verse 2 is strengthen what remains. Whatever good remained of the Sardis church was dead or dying. The members needed to show an urgency to build up what was worth retaining, repairing, and redeeming. The phrase includes the emphasis that those few remaining graces which in your spiritual deadly slumber are not yet quite extinct. They needed to take whatever was left as spiritually healthy and build upon it. Otherwise, whatever was left and redeemable was also about to die. The good work of the church was in its death throes. None of it was complete in the sight of God, but there were some spiritual areas that were not completely dead to the work of God. There was a glimmer of hope for this debilitated church, that they were commanded to seize the moment. Strengthen what remains. Don't give up. 
the third thing that he says is in verse 3. Remember what you received and heard. The verb of the command remember is in the present imperative tense, meaning that it calls for continual action, continue remembering. The church was not to simply recount the gospel message once and then move on. Instead, they were to continually recall and retell the power of the gospel to one another in order to know how they should live as Christians in the world. They had received the good news from the apostles and had heard the teachings of the church. As a church, their access to the truth was sufficient to know how to live faithfully. As the church of the modern age, consider the incredible access we have to God's word along with the resources that can deepen our understanding of the Bible. Everything from multiple translations in our language to other resources allow us untold opportunities to better understand God's word. If a church needs to move from laziness to liveliness, it must lean into the study of God's word. If we don't know the word of God, we cannot remember anything that we have forgotten. The word of God is what keeps us on track. Never forget that. We can become so busy with our man-made system in the church that we forget Jesus Christ. And when we forget Jesus Christ, all we're doing is going through the motions. And we may have a good reputation on the outside, but on the inside, what is Jesus saying? You are dying. And then he calls them after they remember to repent. Remember the prodigal son? Remember when he remembered? What did he do? He came to himself. He remembered. And he went home. And that's what Jesus is saying to this church. In several of the letters, Christ called the churches to repent. Because the Sardis church had headed into spiritual decay, it was time to reverse their course, knowing their estate, strengthening the remaining living portions, recognizing truth, and obeying it would result in the change of direction needed to please Christ. But then the Lord offered a warning. It is reasonable that he did so given their current spiritual condition. Jesus alerted the church that he will come like a thief. Now, he was saying this to a church who had been overrun by armies of people because the watchmen weren't alert. And he says, I will come like a thief. His arrival could be imminent and would be unexpected. Jesus even said that they have no idea at what hour I will come upon you. The arrival of Jesus will be at a time of the Father's choosing. Whether the unfaithful in Sardis or all the rest of us, no one will know when it will happen. The impulse of the church both then and now should be to have alertness about the Lord's movements. We should desire to be built up so that the Lord can use us while we are in the world and he will be pleased upon his return. The book of Revelation points us to the return of the triumphant Christ. Paul says to us, when he comes, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. We can get a glimpse of this. 
if you have unexpected guests to drop in and you're not prepared for them, you can do more cleaning from the time the doorbell rings until you answer it than you might have done in two days. Isn't that right? Happens that way in my house. Papers get put away, you know, just straighten up in here, move the dog bed, and all this stuff. But if you know someone's coming, you will work your fingers to the bone to get ready, won't you? You will. Or if you're in my house and it's Janet, you'll work my fingers to the bone to get ready for it. But you'll get ready, won't you? Jesus is saying, be ready. Always be ready. We don't live that way, though, do we? I just don't think we live that way. But he can come when he chooses to come. When the Father chooses for him to come. Jesus celebrates in verse 4 their faithfulness. In light of all he said, it would seem as if the church was a total mess. But the Lord pointed out that there were a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes. The disciplinary tone of the letter now has a ring of hopefulness to it. Christ recognizes the faithful remnant. Only a few in the church had remained faithful, but they would be rewarded. Jesus described them in terms of what they had not allowed to happen. The image of clothes not being stained, easily related to the biblical language about the robes of righteousness that clothed the redeemed. The spiritual clothing of the saved was purified by the blood of Christ. His atoning sacrifice was the outward characteristic seen by God of those who have not defiled their clothes. Their reputation is one of purity. The faithful remnant reflects the righteousness of Christ. Jesus declared them as worthy because of their real-time faithfulness. In the letter and within several of the others, Jesus made it clear that He values faithful living to his faithful gospel. Our lives are changed because of his work, not ours. It is by what Jesus did on the cross and through the resurrection that any of us can be clothed in white. We are only worthy of a relationship with Christ because of his work. You see, and they had forgotten that. Their loyalties had shifted somewhat to their own works. But then in verses 5 and 6, Jesus announces their rewards. Christians are once again called the one who conquers in this message as they have been in other letters. It is the reinforcing title Jesus gives to the Sardinian believers because of what he had done for them. The robe of righteousness is a public sign of Jesus' victory in your life. Because of his resurrection, they were dressed in white clothes. The clothing is representative of the righteousness that we have observed in the passage. These garments displayed the purity that comes by Christ's righteousness being laid upon a person's life. Rather than a person being known by their past, they are presented as a person in good standing because of the work of Christ. And then he mentions this for the first time. The book of life. The book of life is an eternal statement of the Christian's security. A newly introduced feature in this passage offers among the seven letters in the mention of the book of life. Those of faith will never have their names removed from it. 
The ancient Jews kept detailed records of their lineages and family histories. It was meticulously kept over the course of generations in order for people to know who belonged in the family. The book kept by Jesus is a record of those who are part of his heavenly family. Just as a person's birth and life cannot be erased from the Jewish lineage, neither would Jesus remove a person's name from the book of the new life they find in him. Our salvation is eternally secure. Your name is in the book. A few years ago, I had a cousin that lives in King William County that came to me because the caretaker of the cemetery where his grandmother, which would be my great-grandmother, was buried, didn't believe that she was buried in the cemetery. There was no marker. And he said, I know she was buried there. And I called Daddy. Daddy said, yeah, he knew she was buried there. But how do you make someone believe that someone is buried somewhere when they say she's not and he's the trustee of the cemetery? Well, I'll tell you how you do it you get the death certificate. And on death certificates, she died in the 50s. On death certificates in the 50s, they stated where the person was buried. And I said, we'll get that death certificate, and if if it says she's buried there, whether she is or not, she is. Because the state of Virginia, the Commonwealth of Virginia, says she's buried there, so that's where she's buried. Sure enough, it came by, and that's where she was buried. So he had all the proof he needed to do what was necessary. No argument. Because if the Commonwealth of Virginia says she's buried there, she's buried there. So I say that because if your name is written in the book of life, you are secure in your relationship with Jesus. Isn't that wonderful to know that he writes our name down? You say, well, how's that possible? Well, you know, a few years ago, we didn't think it was possible to hold the phones we hold in our hand either, did we? With all the information they have. You have enough uh, computer power in your hand to launch a nuclear war if you chose to and knew how to. So don't pretend that he can't write your name down. The God of the universe. The acknowledgement by Jesus is a celebration of our relationship with him. We are accustomed to thinking of declarations in heaven being made by the worshiping crowd around God's throne. The Lord will reverse these roles. He plans to make a declaration from his seat of authority. This speaks of the depth of love that the Lord has for his people. He will interrupt the worship that is coming to him so that he might recognize the names of individual believers of the church. We truly have an astounding God. He loves us. The faithfulness of the church is not something to be taken for granted or treated lightly. In the Sardis letter, we do not have any indication that there was exterior pressure to recant the faith like we had in the other letters. Did you catch that? No report exists of a false teacher drawing the affections of Christians away from Jesus. Instead, we have a church that simply grew cold in its faith. But Jesus' patience appeared on their behalf. Not only did he tell them to change and give them a plan to do so, he had also planned the eternal recognition of their faith. The Sardis church was called to awaken from their spiritual slumber. 
They were dead. Our churches must heed the same call when it comes from Christ. We must ask ourselves, if we compare ourselves to the church at Sardis, what would Jesus say about us? Shall we pray? Father, we are grateful for this church, for its power to overcome even in the midst of death. We're grateful, Father, that you show us the way. Give us the path. May we take that path and follow it into your presence. Thank you for writing our names in the book of life. May we live to honor your name. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.